Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and being built up in him, and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ." Ascends the reading of God's word. In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes to remind the believers that they have been transferred from one kingdom to another, no longer under the authority of darkness, but living in the kingdom of his Son, through whom we have redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. Having established who Christ is, Paul calls on the Colossians to walk in him, to please him in all respects, to bear fruit in every good work, to grow in strength and power in order that the saints would attain steadfastness and patience. The images Paul uses points to both growth and building, having our root and foundation in Christ, and then from that foundation being built up in him, that our faith would be established and that we would abound with thanksgiving. Having tasted the fullness and the wisdom of God found in Christ, Our temptation is always being carried off by our own understanding, being held captive with philosophy and empty deception. The lie of Satan remains the same as it was in the garden. Lay aside the commandments of God and follow our own path. Lean on our own understanding. The Spirit's call to us this morning is to walk in Christ, recognizing that we are citizens of his glorious kingdom, no longer ruled by darkness, but governed by the Creator, and the, of the universe. For in him all the fullness, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. As his people, let us confess this morning where we have trusted in the philosophy of men and have forsaken God's laws and his perfect wisdom. Heavenly Father, for giving us your word. We pray that we would uh, profit from it, see your son Jesus more clearly, follow him more nearly, love him more dearly. We thank you for this picture of his people. Help us to understand your ways of grace and salvation more because of this text, because of this time we spend in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I may have mentioned this before, but every time I uh, go back to the home where I was born and raised on the country grid of half-mile blocks that we have in the Midwest, I take a walk or a jog halfway around the block, up a small hill into the woods where the Overisel Township Cemetery lies. 
And there I find under an ancient gum tree the grave of my father. Fifty feet away are the uh, graves of my great uh, grandparents and great grandparents, an uncle, and other more distant relatives. Last time I was there, I took a, a bucket of dirt along and righted a couple tombstones of my ancestors. All their bodily remains are awaiting the resurrection there with their heads lying to the west so that when Christ returns from the east, so it is said, they will rise and sit up and the first thing they will see is Christ. Today is All Saints Sunday, a day the church has traditionally set aside to remember all believers, especially those who have gone on to be with the Lord. And so we turn to Revelation 7 to consider the church triumphant. I'm going to quickly walk through that verse by verse, and then you'll see in the bulletin, uh, consider the church year, uh, the theme of death generally, and the saints' rest. So let's consider Revelation 7, verse 9. We have here Christ's people triumphing in his salvation in the end, uh, giving him all glory and honor. Many have gone before to the Lord from every nation, we see, verse 9. There's a big discussion happening these days about whether those nations remain nations in, uh, in glory. I'm not going to get into that now. Uh, the emphasis of the text is that uh, Christ has people from every nation. And we should see that that's uh, the character of the church. They stand before God in white robes, which indicates their purity, with palm branches, which indicates victory, or my Palm Sunday tie today just to, for that purpose. A palm branch means generally meant in the New Testament times victory and triumph. It was held up. Uh, the, the actual context is very political. It was held up as the Roman uh, generals would return to Rome after conquering and winning military battles. And they would throw palm branches before the Caesar or before the general uh, to share in the victory of their Lord. That God, I believe, takes that up, that context, and gives it true meaning with our victory in Christ. Their focus, verse 10, is salvation belonging to God. It's the Lamb's doing. Uh, Jonah says this in Jonah chapter 2. The climax, I think, of the book of Jonah is when he's in the whale, fish, whatever. He's still in the fish at the bottom of the ocean. And he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a sign of repentance for Jonah. Here it's a sign of victory, also the same truth. Uh, they're joining uh, all of sentient life forms, to use some sci-fi language. Uh, you have the, the angels in verse 11 around the throne, the four living creatures, and the elders are, are joining in with them. Uh, every uh, sentient life form, angels, men, living creatures, all joining around the throne, falling on their faces before the throne and worshiping God. What are they saying? Well, they're giving glory to God. Uh, one reason I think that we so love that last closing song that we sing every Sunday now is because it reflects this exactly. We sing, glory be to God the Father, glory be to God the Son. That's what they're saying here. And, and they pile up the words, blessing, glory, Wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, all of these things are God's. Uh, now these are the people, the, the vision is interrupted, verse 13, uh, and one of the elders uh, turns to John, 
this would be interesting to see cinematically done, right? You have the, the vision, and then all of a sudden you're kind of off camera. And an elder says to John, who's watching all this, What's, who are these people? And John simply says, you tell me. <laughs> I, I like his response. You know, these are the ones who come out of the tribulation. These are done with trials and troubles. Now, there are some who may make a case here that this is a particular set of Christians who have come out of a particular tribulation. I don't think that's the case. I think we're talking here about all believers who have come out of all tribulations. Uh, but it details their salvation, verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, that's uh, their salvation described. They are in the direct presence of God. It turns poetic here in verse 15. Uh, they are before the throne, serve him day and night. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So we see they're, they're in the direct presence of God, sheltered, cared for, uh, in the temple, notice. So God's presence is with them. That's what's going on. Uh, their needs are met, verse 16. They shall hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. That's what's going on. Their needs are met. They are safe from harm. Their sorrows are taken away, verse 17. Uh, they, God wipes away every tear from their eyes. They have a shepherd. Notice Jesus as our shepherd that continues on into glory. He guides them to springs of living water. Calls to mind Psalm 23. We'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever with the Lord as our shepherd. So that's a, a picture, a quick run through of Revelation 7. And what we have here, and now let's, let's consider again the church year in light of this. The church calendar shows us our life bound up with Christ's life and work. And let's think about that from the beginning of the year up until now, which will take us through the whole thing. Again, it begins in Advent. The light of Christ in Advent comes to our darkness at Christ's birth. And there's an interesting thing. The, the, this was created in Western Europe, which has the same general uh, latitude, longitude, latitude, I should say, as, as we do. So it fits very nicely. I looked it up. The sun will set tonight at 5.20 p.m., that's like shockingly early, right? Especially with the time change thing. It's like, whoa, it's getting dark early. And you get up in the morning and it's still dark when you go to work. That's the point. It's a dark time. And Christ comes to us in our darkness. But from Christmas on, it gets lighter, longer, every day. And we come to the ministry of Jesus during Lent and through the triumphal entry in the cross. Christ's death and resurrection, ascension, and the Spirit being given. Uh, then you have a long season of Pentecost in the church year. When we grow with the Spirit's help, Pentecost goes from May to November, which is roughly harvest season. That's when the crops are growing. We are God's crop. God is growing us. He's looking for fruit in us. It's a great parallel. The harvest in November comes when our growth is done and we're gathered into the Lord's barns, either at our death or when Christ returns to take us home. So in, on All Saints Day, which is uh, this past uh, November 1, we celebrate it on this Sunday today, uh, the saints are at rest with the Lord. Uh, the night before that is when evil has its last heyday. 
just like we see the great rebellion of the last days described in Revelation 16 and 19. At Thanksgiving time, we consider God's harvest, the actual return of Christ, and the gathering of all his people in, free from sorrow, free from sin, as we just sang. So that's the church year. It summarizes redemptive history in 12 months. We can also summarize history, uh, redemptive history in a week. God creates, God then he works, and he rests. Jesus rises from the dead. He bears fruit in his church as we work Monday through Friday, and he gathers us home for Sabbath rest. You can summarize it in a week. You can summarize it in a day. Jesus rose to a new morning before dawn. He works while it is day, as we do, and with sleep comes death. And All Saints Day is about believers who have died. So that's the point at which we are, where we consider our end. So that's the third uh, point in the sermon outline today. I'm working through quickly here today. Death. This is a day to think about death in a biblical way. Maybe that helps you understand why Halloween is what it is. Because it's the world trying to cope with death. And they do it very badly. You You don't know how to deal with death if we don't have faith in the God and the Lord of life. We ignore death today. We look away from it. We deny our mortality. But Solomon says it's better to go to the house of mourning, of grieving, than to the house of feasting. When we are obsessed with death, we play zombie video games, maybe. Some people are obsessed with death. Others ignore it. We avoid thinking about death. Our thoughts get worldly then. We set our minds on the earth, not on things above, as Colossians says. When Rome fell to the barbarians, many refugees fled to Carthage, where Augustine lived. And he observed that they were more likely to go to the circus and to the theater than they were to go to church. Because they just didn't want to think about that awfulness that they had seen. They were avoiding thinking about death. Or they would go to the arena, and they would get hooked on seeing people die in person. We talk about dopamine rushes today. That we think that's a new thing. No, that's been going on since the beginning of time. Think of 50,000 frenzied fans not screaming and celebrating a touchdown, but screaming and celebrating the murder of one person after another and getting a dopamine rush from that and wanting to go back again tomorrow. Some people get hooked on death like that. We need to know our own mortality. Pascal put it this way, thinking about our lives. The last act is bloody, however fine the rest of the play. They throw earth over your head, and it is finished. Or Kevin DeYoung says, if your main goal in life is to try to stay alive, know that you're going to fail. It used to be that if you wanted to go to church, you had to walk through a churchyard, a graveyard, The church would be within the cemetery. The church saw to it that you knew your mortality before the service even started, before you even got in the building. But we don't think much about our own death anymore. It's interesting, as I thought about it, I asked my family this morning just to make sure, um, in in all my years here so far, I have not yet done a funeral. (laughs) So... 
Uh, th that's one reason I'm, I'm bringing this up and talking about this now, because it's important for us to think about death together. There's a great song that we sing in the, in the cantus. Uh, we, it, it's a, it's a bit dif more difficult to sing, so I'm just going to give you some of the words. Uh, notice the depressing first verse about sleep. The day is past and gone. The evening shade appears. Oh, may we all remember well the night of death draws near. There again, it, it's hearkening to every time you go to sleep, there's a reminder that death is coming. In the second verse, we lay our garments by, and on our beds we rest, so death will soon disrobe us all of what we here possess. Striking words. But that gives way to a theme of resting in God's love in the last verse. When our days are past and we from time remove, oh, may we in thy bosom rest, the bosom of thy love. And that takes us to the last theme of rest. Death leads to rest. We have rest in Christ's work, ultimately. And we are called as believers to know that rest as well as we can. Richard Baxter wrote a wonderful book. I'd commend it to you. Most of the rest of this message is just kind of picking out the main points of Baxter in that book. It's called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. I'd encourage reading that book. That Baxter says, here are some of the things he says. We don't have that rest right now. We have it in part, right? Jesus talks about uh, you have life already in me, but eternal life is coming. We don't have it fully, and we must know that we don't have it to seek to get it. That sounds an awful lot like Augustine, who I already mentioned a few times. He said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in God. So the saints' rest, it consists of a few things. Uh, here are, here's some more from Baxter. Uh, in our everlasting rest, the means of grace will cease. That's something to think about. The means of grace will cease. That, that, that gets at what's the means of grace and what is actual grace, right? God works through means to give us grace these days. Means like prayer, fasting, preaching, hope, faith, pastors, parents. These are all, in, in different ways, means of grace. Many of those things, parenting for example, will, in a sense, pass away in glory. Will we be parent parenting our children in glory, seeking to have them grow in the Lord? I don't think so. The, our children themselves will be growing, will be um, prospering in the Lord. Uh, so the means of grace cease. That's a hard thing to contemplate and to articulate, as you can tell as I'm hesitating up here right now. But the means of grace will cease. Somewhere it says, Jeremiah 31, I think, that you won't need anyone to tell you, teach you to know the Lord, because we'll all know the Lord. The, the, the pastoring, the teaching will, will cease. But the grace itself does not cease. Verse 16 of our text, 17. The lamb in their midst will be their shepherd. Jesus is still shepherding us. We're still being fed by him. But there's a, an immediate sense to it now, not mediated grace in any sense. 
It's immediate. So that's part of our rest. The, the, the relationship we have with God. Not through a temple anymore, Revelation speaks of. There's no temple there anymore. The, the Lamb itself is the temple, is the Son. So the saint's everlasting rest means the, the means of grace cease. It means we're free from evil. Nothing that defiles. No sickness, no weakness. We see that in the description as well. It means the soul perfected to enjoy God fully. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. I love that verse. Notice what it says there. Then I shall know just as I also am known. The first verb is future tense. I'm going to know. But the second verb is present tense. You are fully known now by the Lord. But there will come a day when in that sense that God fully knows you, you will fully know and understand. That's glorious to think about. The saint's everlasting rest consists of all faculties of body and soul being used to love and to serve God. We will be fully alive. Sin deadens. It it isolates. But with no sin left, with it all gone, we're fully alive. You won't see through a veil. We'll see face to face. God's love embracing us fully, and you'll know it. There's more that could be said. Uh, Joy that's given. Remember the prodigal son's return. And the father runs and embraces him and forgives him and feasts him for the overflowing joy that they share. Come and enter into the joy of your Lord, the other parable says. There's joy that's given. There's an eternity and everlasting nature to this. Forever and ever, verse 12 of our text in Revelation 7. Day and night, verse 15. Not anymore, verse 16. No hunger, no thirst anymore. The main point of all this is that the glory is given to the Lamb for all these things happening. We have rest primarily in Christ's work. He has done it. That's why I keep referring back to the the hymn that Don played at the beginning. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. Great phrase. Jesus has done this. He was effective in doing it. That's our rest. So, uh, what to do? Just a couple of things to apply, and then we're done today. I joked online that I was going to preach an extra hour because we had an extra hour, right? No, no, no. Won't do that. A few things to do. Number one, remember your mortality. Give thanks for departed saints who have rest. Uh, realize that uh, as the way our culture deals with death is either to go ghoulish and obsessive about it or to ignore it very often. Uh, Funerals too often today focus on celebrating the life of the dearly departed, and that's all they do. But uh, we need to point to our mortality and to life beyond the grave as well. Second, remember that death leads to blessing for God's people. And that's true in many, many ways. Um, Think about it first physically, in the literal sense. Um, In Genesis 23, 
Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies. And you know what happens in most of that chapter? Abraham comes to own his first piece of the promised land. Most of the chapter isn't about Sarah's death, but it's something that prompts growth and moving forward in God's plan. I've noticed the blessing that comes when believers die. At the funeral, people come and share stories, and we learn more about the departed than we knew before. And it blesses us. This happened to me personally with my father passing years ago. I also just heard recently, we've been praying for Rob and Trudy Davis. Their uh, 28-year-old son suddenly passed a couple of weeks ago. That recently online, he wrote to the elders list, a beautiful summary, things that he's learned about his son, mostly at the funeral for him, that they had not known before. Friends of his came and said, did you know your son did X, Y, and Z? Like, we never knew that. So there's that way in which sometimes death brings blessing. Of course, Jesus' death leads to blessing for us. That's a fundamental gospel truth. Jesus spoke of his own death, saying, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit. So the very gospel itself tells us there has to be death for there to be life and fruit. That's, that's how God sets up the world. So consider that in your own lives, more of, on a metaphorical, spiritual sense. We, we all face deaths of various kinds. We have to put to death our sin. We face the, deep, the uh, departure of loved ones, not like their death, but maybe they move away. Maybe you've lost friends due to moving, whatever it may be. We all face deaths of various kinds like that. And it's often difficult to see the blessing that God is trying to bring in that. Because death does bring hurt and damage and, and turmoil. But God is doing something in that death. Death leads to blessing for God's people. Third, death makes us place our hope in God and not in earthly things. Uh, I've just finished reading The Source by James Mishner, and so I'm kind of on an Israel land kick, uh, not to mention all the recent news. So consider today uh, the city of Hebron in Israel. Besides Jerusalem, Hebron is the most holy site in the world to Jews. Uh, Because not only Sarah, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their wives are all buried there. All except Rachel. Buried in Hebron. And that makes this a most holy site to Jew and Muslim alike. According to my sources, the the Muslims forbade entry to Hebron to Jews and Christians for 700 years, from 1267 to 1967. 1967, of course, was the Six-Day War, when Israel expanded their borders to include Hebron. This is a big deal to them. And we, we don't quite comprehend it all watching the news and seeing what goes on today. But it's a big deal to them, but notice how off track they are. Our hope is not in a burial plot of land. Our hope is not in having a speaker of the house who is a Christian. Our hope is in Christ. 
We're, con we're connected to the land. We, we have loyalty to our nation. So burial rights matter. Politics is important. But God is the one who raises the dead. He's the one who continues to uphold us at death. So even when we're absent from our body, we are present with the Lord. When John sees Jesus in Revelation, our Lord is holding the keys of Hades and of death. He was dead, he says, and is now alive forevermore. And at the end, he's going to throw death into the lake of fire. It'll be the death of death. It's an actual great Puritan book by that title, by John Owen. Look that one up sometime. The death of death in the death of Christ. That's how it happens. All because of the death of Christ at the cross. So remember your mortality. Notice that death leads to blessing. Death, notice that death makes us place our hope in God and not in earthly things. Fourth, seek your rest in Christ. This was the text from Hebrews 4. It's a little bit long and contorted at the beginning, but he's basically saying that Moses didn't give Israel rest. And then David talked about a rest for God's people in the Psalms. But, and, and so Joshua didn't give them rest, even though they entered the land. They occupied the land. Still didn't have rest. There remains a rest for the people of God. Hebrews 4 verse 11. It's in Jesus Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews is, is uh, aiming at. Our rest is not in sacrifices on a temple, in a temple. Our rest is ours for the asking as we trust the work of Christ on the cross. And we need to notice that that rest is missing from our souls probably most of the time. Right? We're restless. We're constantly putting our trust in other things which, which, make, which steals the rest that we could have. God gives you a day every week to rest here. We often turn it into a burden and a can't do this, can't do that. And that's, just, that's less rest. How can this day be restful? Look forward to this day. Close with a story. Uh, the, there was a young aristocrat back in Puritan England times his name was William Montague. He was blinded at the age of 10 by an injury. And he, he continued on as an aristocrat in his uh, schooling. And in grad school, he met a daughter of a British admiral. And they hit it off, and it flamed into romance, and they were engaged. And right before the wedding came, uh, William Montague heard of a new eye surgery procedure. And so with, with no assurance that it would work, the doctors operated, and there he sat day after day with the bandages on his eyes, healing, not knowing if he would see again. And the wedding day was coming, and Will, William Montague wanted his first sight to be his bride on their wedding day, if it could possibly be. So hoping against hope, he asked that the bandages be removed from his eyes, just as the bride came down the aisle. Talk about some drama, right? And she approached, and William's father begins removing the gauze from his son's eyes. And when the last bandage was unwrapped, Montague's eyes opened, and the light flooded in, and he saw his bride's radiant face. 
And he looked and he whispered to her, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. Imagine that, seeing for the first time on that glorious day. That is your story. That's my story. We are going to see for the first time on that day when the bride, the church, is ushered into the presence of our Lord. He has seen us all along. We have been known. But we on that day will see for the first time unimaginable beauty and joy and gladness. God grants rest to his people in Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving to us such great promises in your word. Thank you for holding out before us the rest of Christ. Lord, help us to lay down our burdens and to trust in you and to follow our shepherd. Help us not to be anxious about what we will eat or wear. For you take care of your creation so tenderly. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we look to you to provide for us all that we need, that you would do as you do every week, usher us to your table, that we may partake of Christ, that we may be fed by union with him in this bread and wine. Lord, as we uh, prepare for this, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus. And we pray in his name, and we sing as he taught us to be. Reading from Hebrews 12 for our communion exhortation, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Thus far the reading of God's word. We remember the communion of saints today. We're at the communion table on All Saints Day. We remember the blood of sprinkling, but it is better than Abel's blood, spilled senselessly, that didn't work any atonement. Jesus' blood did, and so we find ourselves among the spirits of men made perfect. We find ourselves in the direct presence of the living God. When God invited Moses and the 70 elders up the mountain to eat and drink with him in Exodus 24, they saw God and ate and drank. It was a partial reversal of God expelling Adam and Eve from the garden. They went back up the mountain to God's presence. When our Lord came to earth, the expulsion was reversed more. Jesus lives with us. He came down the mountain with us and then went back up again to eat and drink in the upper room before going to the tree to die. He made our rest possible. And this is a faint inkling of what it looks like. I should rephrase that. He didn't just make our rest possible. 
He brought us into that rest. Our rest is union and fellowship with God, completely unhindered by our sin. Fellowship with each other, enjoying God forever. So come, for all things are now ready. These are gifts of God for the people of God. And we invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized, who are under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except for God's sovereign mercy in Christ, that you're trusting Christ alone for your salvation. So come and welcome. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.